me ask, how many of you have never been afraid of the dark? Never been afraid of the dark. Well, that means that we can all relate to this five-year-old by the name of Johnny. He's in the kitchen, and his mother was preparing supper. And his mom asked him to go to the pantry and get her a can of tomato soup. But he didn't want to go alone. It's dark in there, and I'm scared. She asked again, and he persisted. Finally, she said, it's okay, Johnny. Jesus will be with you. And so Johnny reluctantly headed to the pantry. When he arrived at the door, he opened it slowly and peeked inside, and sure enough, it was dark. And he started to leave when all at once an idea came to him. He turned back to the pantry and he said, Jesus, if you're really in there, could you please hand me out a can of tomato soup? <laughs> John chapter 8, verse 12 reads, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Remember how the Apostle John opens the Gospel of John? If you'll turn there to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Like that pantry, the world is a place of darkness. It's a dark world, full of sin, evil, wickedness. A world of sickness, pain and suffering, a world of hatred, prejudices, oppression, wars, a world of death, both physical and spiritual. Daily news reports of the darkness are unrelenting. Murders, accidents, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, it's a world of poverty and injustices, a world of spiritual blindness, arrogance, and rebellion. It's a world where the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. And yes, we're less than perfect people, surrounded by less than perfect circumstances, living in a world of darkness. But that wasn't always the case. Adam and Eve chose to do what God had specifically told them not to do. And as a result, the perfect relationship between the Creator and His creation was broken. And darkness permeated everything. We live in a world of darkness. But Jesus entered the pantry and announced, I am the light of the world. Light dispels the darkness. Good news? 
perhaps. But then we read these words in John chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. Keep those words in mind. As we turn to this story of how the religious elite of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, responded to the light when he entered their pantry, so to speak, as reported in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. There are lessons here for you and I to, to learn. Implications. That as we observe what happened when these Pharisees encountered the light, I've broken the episode down into five stages for our study this morning. The context, the claim, the challenge, the correction, and then the cause. Please stand with me for the reading from God's Word, if you're able. Beginning at verse 12 of John chapter 8. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I have the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Please be seated. Father, thank you for these scriptures, the words of the psalmist, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree 
firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Father, make us like trees firmly planted by streams of water, we pray. May our delight be in your word, so that we don't wither, but rather are found bearing much fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Use this episode from John's account of the life of Jesus to prepare us further to be faithful followers, committed to walking in the light, by the power of your spirit and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 12 begins, Then Jesus again spoke to them. If we don't take time to set the context for this story, we'll miss the significant impact it initially had. You'll remember that Jesus has returned to the city of Jerusalem to participate in the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles. This is one of three annual festivals where all males needed to travel to Jerusalem in order to appear before the Lord in the temple there. Apparently, it was the most popular of the three festivals. It lasted seven days, and the purpose was to remember and celebrate the Lord's faithful provision for their ancestors as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, making their way from Egypt to the land that God had promised would one day be theirs. Many of the festival participants would build temporary shelters out of palm branches. They'd live in them for the entire week. Again, as a reminder, of what their ancestors had to endure while traveling through the wilderness. And so they lived in these makeshift booths during the week of festival. A few weeks ago, we learned of a ritual that had become part of this festival of booth celebration. Each day during the festival, the high priest would lead a parade from the Pool of Siloam to the temple. When they arrived at the temple, they would march around the altar seven times, and then the high priest would pour out a pitcher of water that he carried from the pool of Siloam. It was poured out as an offering to God. You'll remember that Jesus took this opportunity, following seven days of this water-pouring-out ritual, to announce according to John chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's not hard for us to imagine the impact of this timely announcement as the water from that pitcher disappeared into the dry and barren ground. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
But there was a second ritual attached to this festival of booze. Every night of the festival, four huge candelabras were lit. Each candelabra consisted of four bowls. One commentator offers the following description. These 16 golden bowls, reached by ladders, were filled with oil and used the worn-out garments of the priests for wicks. When they were lit at night, so the rabbis said, all Jerusalem was illuminated, the entire city. In a world that did not have public lighting after dusk, this light shining from Jerusalem's yellow limestone walls must have been spectacular. Can you imagine? And what do you think this ritual brought to the minds of those who were participating at the Festival of Booze? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. Here's the, this verse will give the context. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near, for God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now drop down to verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire, <coughs> excuse me, in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And in the words of the psalmist, who was reflecting on these wilderness days in Psalm 78, 14, he wrote, Then he led them with the cloud by day, and all the night with the light of fire. These candelabras were visual reminders of how God had faithfully led their ancestors through the wilderness the fulfillment of his promise. And where were these candelabras located? Look at verse 20 of John chapter 8. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The temple, the temple treasury was within the court of women. Outside, beyond that court, was the court of Gentiles. So this court was in the temple proper. And so Jesus makes his statement, I am the light of the world announcement. He was actually standing in the shadows of these 75-foot candelabras. Can you imagine? Another commentator paints this picture. All night long, the boys of priestly families would clamor up and down the ladders, 
filling and refilling these bowls of oil so that the lamps would burn and burn like the pillar of fire that had led their fathers and mothers through the wilderness. Perhaps they were still smoldering. Maybe they were being removed at the end of the festival, part of the post-festival temple cleanup. The timing of his announcement is impeccable. I am the light of the world. Notice the use of the definite article. I am the light, as in there are no others. And not just for a select few, but for the whole world. And unlike those candelabras that were packed up and put away, this light of the world was never going to be extinguished. He is the light of the world forever and ever. Amen. Light dispels darkness. Jesus' claim consists of two parts. Jesus first identified himself as the light of the world, but then attaches a promise to his announcement. Did you notice? Look at verse 12, the second part. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The promise has a prerequisite. Whoever follows me. Following him means that we're all in. You are prepared to surrender the leadership of your life for Christ's lordship. Jesus, through, his word, through the word of God, is allowed to lead. We submit to his directives. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 reads, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to follow me, or to come after me, is the actual reading, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Denying yourself means that you're prepared to surrender that leadership. Taking up your cross daily speaks of, or at least is calling us, to a life of sacrifice. And follow me, well, we all know where that leads. A life of service. Not to be served, but to serve. You give your life as a ransom for many. Surrender, sacrifice, and putting others' interests ahead of our own. Following him requires all of us, our whole person, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that kind of followership results in light and life, according to the promise. Light that will help us to navigate our way through a world of darkness. In the words of the wisest man who ever lived, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Following Jesus is like flipping on the light switch. We will no longer be stumbling around in the darkness. And following Jesus 
doesn't just deliver light, but eternal life. Life that is both now and forever. It is both a quantity and a quality of life that is not available apart from following Jesus. I am the light of the world, and light dispels darkness. But the Pharisees challenged Jesus' claim. They would have understood him as saying that he was claiming to be equal with God again. Psalm 27 begins with, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And that's exactly what they heard Jesus saying here in John chapter 8. I am the Lord who is your salvation and your light. And so the Pharisees' challenge was both bold and clear. Your testimony is not true. It's not valid. It's unreliable. Untrustworthy. And they're critique. It's kind of understandable, don't you think? People can claim all kinds of ridiculous things. Have you ever watched the contestants on American Idol? Like, I know I can't sing. I can't sing if my life depended on it. But some of those contestants, they're at least as bad as I am. And yet, they're absolutely convinced that they can win the whole thing. And then the judges try to enlighten them, expose them to the truth, give them a kind of defined reality for them. Oh boy, they not only get defensive, some of them get belligerent. But Jesus was no delusional American Idol contestant. And yet, that didn't stop these Pharisees from making a bold challenge. I am the light of the world. Light dispels darkness. Jesus responded to their challenge with some words of correction. Notice verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, My testimony is true. You feel the tension in the air? We've all been there. Standing on opposite sides of the demilitarized zone, like North and South Korea. Jaws set. Fists clenched. Who will blink first? Verse 13, your testimony is not true. Verse 14, My testimony is true. And then Jesus continued by presenting three realities that support the veracity of his claim, the truthfulness of his testimony. First of all, you may want to underline these phrases in verse 14. I know where I am going and where I am going. But you do not know. I I know, you do not know. 
Jesus' testimony was valid because he knew something that these Pharisees did not know. He knew where he came from and where he was going. Listen to these words from Jesus recorded in John chapter 16, verse 28. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Jesus knew exactly where he came from and where he was going. On the other hand, these Pharisees thought he was a Galilean, originating in Nazareth. Look at chapter 7, verse 52. When Nicodemus tried to respond to their charges, they answered him, Are you also from Galilee? Are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They were assuming that Jesus came from Galilee. What Jesus knew, they did not know, validated his testimony. Secondly, the Pharisees' judgment was limited at best by what they could see based on the darkness of their understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 informs us that natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. Folks, you and I are incapable of figuring these kinds of spiritual realities out all by ourselves. We're just not smart enough. In fact, left to ourselves, we will conclude that God's ways are foolishness. Just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Nothing to be taken seriously. It will not make any sense to the natural mind. But Jesus does not judge like the Pharisees. John chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. These Pharisees were the premier judges of the day. They knew the law inside and out. From back to front, front to back. And that familiarity with the law armed them with an insatiable desire to judge other people. Jesus, on the other hand, declares, I am not judging anyone. It's sure not hard to understand why that story of the adulterous woman was inserted at this point in the story, is it? That story illustrates exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The Pharisees were wanting to test Jesus so they might have grounds for accusing him in verse 6. And so they brought this woman whom they apparently had caught in the very act of adultery 
and placed her before Jesus. On the basis of the law, they were prepared to stone her. But they wanted Jesus to declare his position. Jesus invited the one who was without sin to cast the first stone. And they all departed. They didn't even stick around to hear Jesus' final verdict. I do not condemn or judge you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Looking back at John chapter 7, verse 24, we read this. Jesus' words. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And in John chapter 5, he made this confession in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' judgment was nothing like these Pharisees. It's a righteous judgment, not based merely on externals, for he himself knew what was in man. John chapter 2, verse 25. And it's a judgment that is made in complete collaboration with the Father. And that brings us to the third reason for Jesus' testimony about being the light of the world was true. Jesus' intimate relationship with the Father validates his testimony. Look again at verse 17 and 18. Even if your law, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Think about it. How does the Father testify about Jesus? Maybe we'll turn back to John chapter 1. Look at verse 6. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Drop down to verse 34. I myself have seen and have, and have testified that this is the Son of God. Verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Certainly John the Baptist, sent by God, testified that Jesus was the light. What about his early disciples? Turn the page. Let's look at Nathaniel, for example. He was a skeptic initially, but then look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Verse 48, 
Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And here's Nathanael's testimony. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. How about the despised Samaritans in John chapter 4, verse 42? For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus' miracle certainly proved he was no ordinary man. Water to wine, feeding 20,000 people from what four, five loaves, barley loaves and two fish. What about the man who had been lame for 38 years, healed instantly? And those are just three examples of all kinds of miracles and wonders. His teaching was also unique. So much so that even those who opposed him had to admit that never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. But for these obstinate Pharisees, enough was never going to be enough. In fact, Jesus could die and rise from the dead three days later. They still would not believe. Unbelief rooted in ignorance is one thing. Unbelief, arrogant unbelief, rooted in an insistence that we have it all figured out is terminal. It's chronic. When we stop listening and become obsessed with discrediting or eliminating those who are attempting to communicate what God has clearly disclosed, we're skating on thin ice, inviting God's judgment. We're turning our backs on the light. I am the light of the world. Light dispels darkness. And the Pharisees interrupt with a question. Where is your father? Perhaps it was a legitimate cross-examination. I'm not sure. Some have suggested that they were mocking Jesus, accusing him of being an illegitimate child, born outside of marriage covenant. Others have suggested Joseph had already died, Mary's husband had already died, prior to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and so was unable to testify on his behalf. But Jesus, in his answer to their question, exposes the cause of their inability to accept his claim to be the light of the world. Look at verse 19. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So, to know the Father is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And although these Pharisees, they claimed to know the Father better than anyone, after all, they were recognized by their peers 
as the very best that Judaism had to offer. Experts in the law. They enjoyed the respect of all Jews and had the places of honor reserved for them. But they didn't know God. What an indictment. Can you imagine? Let me give you three implications from this story to consider, and then I will pray. Number one, we live in a world of darkness, and it's okay to be afraid. This world is a hostile place. It's broken. And for followers of Jesus, there may be times when it gets real personal. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19 read, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Secondly, there are two things about Jesus that are absolutely essential. We must get these two right. If we miss these two, we've missed the entire point. Number one, who Jesus was. And number two, what he came to do. That was the Apostle John's sole purpose in writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Remember John chapter 20, verse 31, the purpose statement for the book? The author declares it. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who he is, and that believing you may have life in his name, what he came to do, those two things. Interesting. John goes over that again and again and again. He doesn't repeat the exact same phrase. He comes at it from different angles. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12. It's another version, if you will, of John's purpose. I am the light of the world, who Jesus is. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What he came to do. We have to get them right. If we don't, we'll miss the entire point. And then thirdly, as we follow him, we become lights in the darkness because the light dwells in us. What Glenn was sharing about earlier. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Light 
dispels darkness. Let's pray. Father, the Apostle Paul later wrote these words. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. May the latter be our experience and our testimony. Enable us to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. In both thought and deed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.